Amen. Please be seated. Except the kiddos, you are dismissed. Uh, and as they go to the rear, let me say once again, welcome. Uh, if you're a visitor here to Restoration Church, let me say on behalf of the entirety of our church, welcome. We're glad that you're worshiping with us. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. And let me begin by seeing if I can get you to obey some scripture right out of the, right out of the box for me. So the Bible says that we should bear one another's burdens. I need you to bear a burden with me right now. This sermon that I have, I have prepared here is too much. It's too long. Uh, and I, I'm still learning how to preach. And uh, we're beginning a series here, and so I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to run and talk really fast to try to get through it all. And I need you to bear that burden so I don't have to do that. So will you bear that burden with me? Yes. Thank you. They're like, hmm. I'm going to need you to do it anyway. I'm going to preach it anyway. So uh, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the uh, sufficiency of your word. And we thank you for the supremacy of Christ, wherein all things are being summed up together. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, imagine the year is 51 A.D. Imagine your name is Demetrius. You are a silversmith working in one of the great ancient cities, uh, the city of Ephesus. I want you to imagine that you're a silversmith, 51 A.D., you're a silversmith working there in that ancient city. And in that ancient city, you, this silversmith, one of the reasons you're a silversmith is because in that city is one of the great ancient uh, wonders of the world. In fact, it was called one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the temple of Artemis. So it was a, a temple to a false god. And you're a silversmith making idols of this particular temple, wherein you would sell these silver idols to other people, and people would carry them home, and they would worship them. And this great temple in there in Ephesus, uh, it was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and it stood at a staggering 60 feet in the air. Right, that's the ancient world. And you, Demetrius, as I said, you're selling these small idols, but you have had a, a threat to your business come into the city just a few days ago. Uh, it's this man you've heard about going all through Asia. His, na- his name is Paul. And you're concerned. You're concerned for your own business because your business is being threatened by this guy because this guy has showed up in the city of Ephesus on his way to other cities talking about this gospel. And in that synagogue, Paul is teaching in your own city that gods made by hand, by the hands of men, are not gods at all. And you can see why that's going to threaten your business, and you're concerned about this. And so as a result, you then gather all the other tradesmen of Ephesus, this great city, into your uh, shop, perhaps. And you bring them all in. The woods, the wood crafters and all the other workmen, they come into your room. And as they're filtering in, you're, you're aware of the fact that this Paul is preaching Jesus the Nazarene. Another guy, by the way, that you've heard about not long ago. This Savior that is called, that is the Son of God that died for sin, rose for sin. You're hearing Paul saying these things. You're bringing these guys into your shop and you say to them as they come in, listen, this, this guy Paul is turning many people away from uh, worshiping Artemis. And you know, this is how we make our money. And they're listening and you begin to say that back to them, listen, these guys, this guy Paul has persuaded not only people here in Ephesus, this guy Paul is persuading people all over uh, Asia about this gospel, about this Jesus. And he is going to possibly bring not only uh, our trades to an end, but he might bring down the great goddess Artemis to an end. And so as you're saying these things, all the people in your room begin to get into an uproar. 
And they then filter out into the community of Ephesus, this great city of Ephesus. And confusion begins to happen. And more and more people get caught up in this confusion. Uh, and as they're doing that, more and more people grow. And then, in fact, there's so much confusion, so much uproar begins to happen. You begin to work your way over to that 25,000 seat amphitheater in Ephesus where there's all kinds of commotion happening. And along the way, this crowd that's sort of been built up because of what Demetrius, you, Demetrius, had said, you grab Gaius and Aristarchus, who's also Paul's travel companion. You bring them in because you want to indict them for what they've done. And as all of this is happening, a town clerk stands up there in the amphitheater and says, listen, if you guys have business, you need to take it to the courts. The courts are open. You can go and speak with them. But listen, you guys are going to turn this thing into a riot and you need to stop it. And as a result, you, Demetrius, and the others make your way back to the shop. And peace begins to come back into the city. Well, friends, this is the first days of the church in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19. A city that now sits in ruins in southwestern Turkey. But in its day, Ephesus was one of the great cities of the world. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, second only to Rome. And one of the great draws of its city was that temple of the goddess Artemis. Artemis. And all of these events occurred, as I mentioned, in 51 AD as the preaching of the gospel, the planting of churches was happening all throughout the ancient world, spreading everywhere it went. As it was said at the time, this church or this gospel and these men and women of the gospel were turning the world upside down. And how large then was this church that was turning at least this city upside down? It would be a good question to ask. That big event that I just referenced to you, that story. How big was that church, the church in Ephesus? It was turning this whole city around. Maybe 30 or 40 people. Maybe. Maybe at most 50. Probably 15, 20, 30 people. Now, what do you say to that, I wonder? Other than the initial preaching of the gospel on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, that was, I say, that sort of size of a church, that was, and I would say, say still is normal in the life of Christianity. Churches less than 100 people gathering daily, gathering weekly as one to worship Jesus Christ as King and Lord. Their lives dominated and radically changed by the love and grace of God. So when we open up the letter to the Ephesians, we are tempted to believe that the size of the church that this letter is being written to and the power were much greater and much larger than this church. And you'd be wrong. This church is probably double the size of that church. Maybe more. But the same power that they had is the same power that we have today. This church, friends, is much larger, as I mentioned, than the church in Ephesus. And the same fa- power that is available to them is available to us in our own modern day city of influence. And so here's why I start our series in Ephesians like this. The dominant theme in this letter is the glory of Christ and his work in the church to unite all things in heaven on earth together as one. That's the theme of this letter. And in ancient Ephesus, most every passerby would have said that Rome was the major power. Or Artemis was the major power. Or maybe the economic prowess of the city was the major power. But in reality, none of them were. That little church, those 30, 40, maybe 50 men, women, and children gathering together, changed by the glory of Christ, 
meeting together. That was the lead agent in ancient Ephesus that was turning the world upside down. See, friends, you may think that this little gathering today is small potatoes. You may think that the real power structures that are bringing heaven to earth is found in the halls of Congress and the lecture halls of our great universities in some NGO or in the next great march or the next great campaign uh, or maybe in a church that has thousands upon thousands of people gathering in it but doesn't clearly preach the gospel. You may think that those are the great power players in the American week. And while, friends, there are some good things that are happening in those realms, certainly, God says that Christ in and through the church, no matter what church it is, that holds fast to the gospel and lives that gospel, that is where heaven and earth is coming together. That is the lead agent of seeing the peace of heaven break into the earth. The exaltation of Christ in churches just like this one, or like the Haitian church that I preached in that had 20 or 30 people gathered in it under a thatched roof. Churches like that one. Underground churches in China. Uh, Other places where the music is not that great. And the leader is not very charismatic. And there's not that many people there. But they lift up the name of Jesus as the name that is above every name. And there they teach people to obey all that Jesus taught. And not just what our culture values. Whether they be 10, 20, or 200, or 2,000. It makes no difference. That is where heaven is is coming to the earth. That is where the greatest concentration of power and authority are, no matter what the world sees or says. And friends, that's what Ephesians is all about. It's about heaven and earth coming together in Christ through the church for the glory of Christ. And so let me give you just a quick primer. Uh, If you want to know how to explain this book to someone, you can remember, I'm going to make it really simple for you. You can remember chapter 1, verse 10, 2, verse 10, 3, verse 10, and then go on to 6, verse 10. That's where you see what all this letter is about. Chapter 1, verse 10. I'm going to grab verse 9 to give you some context. says this. Verse 9 says, Making known to the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, this is God's purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Here it is. What's that plan? As as, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. There it is. That's the thrust of Ephesians. And how is God then uniting all things in Jesus, things on heaven and earth? How's he doing that? Chapter 2, verse 10. He's creating a people, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that were dead in their sins. He's made alive, chapter 2, verse 10, that are created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. That's how he's doing it, through those people. By the way, a people that are both Jew and now Gentile, together as one. That's how he's doing it. Well, say, Nathan, who exactly are those people? These people that he's working through to do good works. Well, grab, I'm going to look to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the, what does it say? Church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. So the church here in that passage, chapter 3, verse 10, most certainly references the universal church, sometimes called the invisible church, the people of Christ across space and time. But as we will see, to separate the universal church from the local church is like trying to separate wings from a bird or scales from a fish. In doing so, you lose its essence. 
So to be a member of the universal church or kingdom of God is to be a meaningful part of a local or visible church. And it is through that church, those local churches, that God is now making known his wisdom to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places, meaning the highest court in all the world. In Christ, God is reconciling the world, bringing heaven and earth together. And it is those whom Christ now dwells that are doing good works in and out of the local assembly, the church, that God is using to restore the world. And you can read all the different sort of parts and roles in chapters 4 and 5. And that brings us then to chapter 6, verse 10, the end of the letter, where Paul says in chapter 6, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then he lists off what we might call the armor of God. Ways in which we are battling in this world to push back darkness. To fight against lies and bring in the truth. That's the letter of two Ephesians. Christ, through His people, uniting heaven and earth, fending off the lies of the world with the truth of Christ for the glory of Christ. And so, that means that we who are His people need to understand our identity if we are going to participate in this Christocentric cosmic recreation of the world. We have to understand our identity if we are going to rightfully participate in this cosmic recreation of the world. And that's the title of our series through this letter. You see it on that card. Our Identity in Christ. Notice we intentionally did not put a Y in front of that O-U-R. We think too much about ourselves as it is. Now, that's important that we do think about ourselves. That's, we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's our identity. And then notice the strength on that card. In Christ. Those are the biggest words. That's our identity. But make no mistake, before we talk about the our or the us, we always have to talk about the Christ. He is not only the means of restoration, He is the aim of restoration. So in light of that, Let's take a look at those first two verses. Two brief points this morning. This morning as we'll look at these first two verses. I'm going to read those. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two points. First point, sent by the grace of God. Sent by the grace of God. Take a look at verse 1 there. Two things in verse 1 we need to see in order, in that verse first, in order to see uh, some themes that we'll see throughout the entirety of the letter. First off, the two themes there in that first verse, the grace of God in suffering. Let me, let me take a look at those. We'll talk about that. The grace of God in suffering. So the word apostle that you see there in verse 1, that word means sent. Sent as a messenger. It doesn't always have to refer to the original 12 disciples, but most of the time it does. And here, that is the meaning of the word. Paul is writing as one, as one of Jesus' capital A apostles. He's writing as one that has authority in ways that even I don't as a pastor. So to be one of Jesus' original apostles, you needed three things to qualify as a capital A apostle. One, you had to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, right? So there was one of those, quote, disciples that didn't do that, right? One, you had to trust in Christ for salvation. Two, you had to have been appointed by Him personally. 
And three, you had to have witnessed the resurrection. That's what you need to be a capital A apostle. Now, Paul, who's the author of this letter, he's a curious case, isn't he? Because not only was he one of the original 12 disciples, not only was he not one of the original 12 disciples, he actually hated the gospel. Hated it. Hated it so much that he gladly led and participated in the persecution of Christians. So it was only until Paul, whose name was previously Saul, it was only when he personally met Jesus on a road to more persecution that he was changed. He then appointed, Jesus then appointed Paul or sent him to spread the gospel, particularly amongst the Gentiles. The Gentiles would be probably most everybody in this room, non-Jews. He had a task pointed by Jesus, the resurrected and ascended Jesus points Paul to then go and spread the gospel to the Gentile people. And so therefore, Paul then meets the criteria of an apostle, capital A apostle. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, weighing out the claims of Christianity, you're sort of working through that. You need to work through this guy, Paul. You've got to grapple with him. Because if Christianity is not true, and it's just this sort of religion that's been made up by people, you've got to be able to make sense of Paul that is undeniably historically true. A guy that was hating Christianity and is radically changed and begins to follow Jesus and spread the gospel. You've got to make sense of him. But regardless, it's important that we notice Paul was not only appointed by Jesus. Look at the verse, verse 1. He was appointed by the will of God. And that's what I was talking. I said the two things here, the God of grace and then suffering. We'll get to suffering in a second. Meaning, Paul is appointed by God the Father, by the will of God the Father there. So this illustrates these other important themes, a couple other important themes that we're going to talk about. The God who is triunity. So we see in this very first verse, God who is tri-unity or trinity. The trinity is a historic Christian confession that uh, says that we worship one God in three persons. One God in three persons. Meaning there's one essence of God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul is an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus, the Lord, by the way. When you see Lord, that's always a designation for God. The Lord by the will of God. Now, you can't see it in this exact verse as it relates to the Spirit, that third person. But if you slide down to verse 13, you'll see it. He's talking about the Spirit. He says, when you, writing to the Ephesians, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, you're going to see the teaching of the Spirit all throughout this letter. But God is triunity. One God, three persons. All of this is coming to Paul and to us by grace. But also we need to see that Paul is not an apostle because of anything that he has accomplished. Don't miss that. Look at verse 1 again. Paul is not an apostle because of anything that he's done. In fact, he quite literally was an enemy of the gospel. But God showed Paul grace and appointed him to be one of the authoritative messengers of the gospel to the Gentile people. I want you to see here that Paul did not choose this office. It came to him by the grace of God. So Paul didn't run a campaign on the office of apostle, put some signs up around the city to see if maybe he'd be elected as an apostle. That didn't happen. He didn't have some debates with some other potential apostles. Didn't put up any Twitter marketing ads to see if maybe he could be elected as an apostle. None of that happened. Wasn't like a really, really moral guy in the life of the church so that people say, oh, you're, you're a good guy. Let us elect you to the office of apostle. None of that happened. 
Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God who graciously appointed him so that the whole world would know what God's like. That's critical. You ever thought about this? Acts chapter 9. Why in the world does Paul get discipled by Ananias? Skip the middleman. Go straight to Ananias. Let him do it. But Paul says, 1 Timothy 1.15, the reason why God chose Saul, now Paul, to be the messenger to the Gentile people was so that the world would know that God is a God of grace. He was a billboard. His life was a billboard. This is what God is like. This is what the Gospel is like. Paul is sent by grace. But the other thing we need to note there is that notion of suffering, as I mentioned before. Paul is likely writing this letter from prison. Now You can't really see that there in the initial passage, but if you were to flip over to chapter 6, verse 20, you can read there, it says, I am an ambassador in chains. This guy Tychicus, who's also bringing Colossians, is carrying this letter around. Paul is writing this from prison. So don't let that get lost on you as we work through this letter. Hear the clanking of the chains as he writes this letter. Paul, who was formerly Saul, hating the Gospel, persecuting those that were changed by it, by the gracious will of God, not by Paul's obedience, he is born again through his seeing and savoring and believing in Christ as Lord, believing that Jesus atoned for his sins, raised for his justification, and not only did God regenerate or cause Paul to be born again by grace through his faith, but he graciously appoints Paul to serve as an apostle, apostle wherein he is able to authoritatively represent Christ and his kingdom. And as he's spreading that gospel to the Gentile world, this former, persecu- former persecutor now has come the persecuted. As a result of his spreading the gospel, no other reason than spreading the gospel, saying that Christ is Lord, he's thrown in jail. And he's receiving all kinds of treatment that's just awful. Numerous times he's beaten. Numerous times he's beaten within an inch of his life. And yet his persecution did not stop his love and trust in the Gospel. Instead, he's finding ways to encourage the spread of the Gospel as he sits in chains in prison. Paul was sent by grace, and yet his mission led to a great deal of pain and persecution. And folks, that's not, that was not part of some sort of separate part that sort of got off the track of Paul's life. That was a meaningful part of God's work in Paul. Suffering and persecution. Christians should know this. Suffering and persecution is part of the Christian life. And it is the way in which God uses to display His glory. I feel like I have to refer to people often these days that they forget that the symbol of our faith is a cross. It's not a bed. These things are alien to us. I think persecuting and suffering, we think that we sort of are owed an easy life. But Paul is suffering. He's preaching the Gospel. And we see that these words that he's giving to Christ's people in the church where heaven and earth are coming together, he's saying things to them because he knows that the truth of Christ is going to be opposed in the world. That's going to get him in trouble at times. And so we're going to have to wrestle with the same things as we walk through this letter. We're going to have to see as we get to like Ephesians 5 what actually God says about marriage. Uh, we're going to see about other things, about the need to speak the truth in love, whatever it is. And it's going, to, it's, not, it's going to oftentimes run up against things that the culture is going to value and teaches us. And we need to be prepared as Paul was to suffer so that the truth might be borne witness to so that heaven and earth could come in. Christ promised suffering 
His crucifixion pictures it. Paul's imprisonment testifies to the reality of suffering in the world. And he's suffering by the gracious will of God as an apostle. And so Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this letter. It is the word of God, every word. He helped plant this church. He was chosen to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's writing from prison in order to testify to the Ephesians and the church around them that God is at work. Heaven is breaking in through them. Though he is in prison and the church in Ephesus may be small, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 people, God is at work. Sent by the grace of God. Secondly, saints by the grace of God. Saints by the grace of God. Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Did y'all catch that? Look again. Saints who are in Ephesus and are, present tense, faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, many of us here in the West are more familiar with the false teaching, the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, because they have created this kind of special class of sainthood. People who have done extraordinary things. People like St. Thomas of Aquinas, who lived in the medieval ages. He was so smart, they called him the doctor of the angels. He's a saint, St. Aquinas. This is one of the reasons I refuse to call Augustine St. Augustine. We're all saints. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church is called Mary a saint. St. Mary or Paul, even that wrote this letter, St. Paul. This is false teaching, folks as is evidenced by a simple reading of this, not only this text, but other texts throughout the Bible. Paul has no category of JV and varsity Christians. Don't miss this. No category for it. But why? And why we, you should then say, well, why is that? Because he understands that we all, we all are in Christ. All those that believe, that is, are in Christ. All Christians are all saints because of what Christ has done for all who believe. Not because of what we believe who have done for Christ. No, no. That's not how we become saints. We are saints because Christ is in us and we are in Christ. Christ is holy and since He is in us and we are in Him, therefore, we who are in Christ are holy. That's what saint means. Holy ones or set apart. And so, we should think about these kinds of things. Will is a saint. Joey is a saint. Right? Dimitri is a saint. Daniel Bergener is a saint. Priyanka is a saint. Owen Bechtel is a saint. My wife is a saint. Believe it or not, she really is a saint for living with me. But, uh, but I, I, I'm a saint. I mean, it's this, but it's nothing because of us. It's nothing because of anything that we do, but it's only because of who we are in Christ. You Christians are saints and you are faithful here in Washington, D.C. because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Your sainthood is not conditioned off of your obedience. It's conditioned upon God's grace to you in Christ through faith. We can never, don't lose sight of this, you can never make yourself acceptable to God. Every religion on planet earth, literally all of them, they all teach the same thing, except Christianity. You can't do enough good things. 100% of God has to make 100% of us acceptable to Him. And that's what He's done in Jesus. You can see that's what he does. Look at verse 4, chapter 1. He chose us in Christ. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That is, that we would be saints by grace. Now guys, as we walk through this letter, you're going to see unparalleled grace as we walk through it. Uh, You see, look over at chapter 2. This is who we used to be as we think about our identity. 
Those of us that are now in Christ by grace through faith in Him. This is who we used to be apart from God's grace. We used to be dead in our sins. We used to follow the world. We used to follow Satan. If you're apart from Christ, that's what it says. We used to follow our own passions. We were by nature children of wrath. There is no good in us. We are saints by the God of grace. I remember talking to an evangelist down in I like to talk to evangelists that are on the side screaming at people in our city because most of the time they're preaching the gospel, yelling at people, and then they go back somewhere two, three hours from here and I go and tell them, I pastor in this city, so I have to deal with all the stuff you're doing. Uh, and he asked me, he said, well, do you think that you're born basically good or basically bad? And I said, that's easy, basically bad. And he went, what? what? Oh. So he didn't, wasn't prepared for me to give that answer, which is the right answer. We are saints by the grace of God. There's no good in us. God has to make us, by His grace, alive. So I realize, guys, that that notion of 100% grace and us apart from grace being totally dead, I realize that crushes the ego of modern man. But it's the truth. And the truth, as Jesus says, sets us free. God has to make us saints by His grace or we have no hope of heaven on earth. None. God has to be loving and gracious while also being full of justice. And that strange and amazing mix of attributes is exactly what we find in Jesus. And because grace is given, peace is then had. You see that there in verse 2? Because grace is given, peace is then had. It says that in verse 2. From Where does the peace come from? Come from us? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, there is no grace and no peace ultimately from us. Only from Him. So Restoration Church, we are a church body that is a collection of saints by the grace of God from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace then leads to peace everlasting. This is why Paul always begins his letter this way. Grace that leads to peace. And isn't peace what you want? Isn't that what you want? Like true peace? Peace from uh, all the war-torn, diabolical, poverty-stricken, polarized, disenfranchised, racist, power-abusing, misogynistic, deceitful, diseased world we live in? Do you want peace? Don't you want grace for all your wrong? Grace that leads to a peace. Restoration Church, isn't this what we want? Grace that leads to peace. Heaven breaking into earth. Destruction of lies and death and abuse. Don't we want to be saints? Holy, set apart? Don't we want to see heaven and earth come together? Well, listen, friends, it will not happen through empty religion. It won't come from your best efforts of being really religious. College students, let me speak to you. You should come to church and come every single week. And that goes for the rest of you. But nevertheless, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless you need to know that by your coming to church doesn't deposit, doesn't deposit good acts into your God account so that you'll be holy. That's not how the Gospel works. We come to hear the truth. And rejoice in it. Peace on earth will not come from electing the right politicians. It won't come from a better economy. It won't come by making more people more nice. It won't come by eliminating the internet or rolling the clock back to a more simpler time. Grace and peace can only come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as the Spirit of Christ breaks in through one weary sinner at a time 
and then gathers them together in little churches for the praise of his glorious grace. That's how it happens. That's our only hope. And that's what the Lord is doing right now all over the world. Reconciling heaven and earth together from believers that are gathering together and then spreading to do good works for the sake of his glory. That doesn't mean, of course, that we need not do good works. We've already talked about that. We should to see peace come. Yes and amen. It does. We've already read saints are supposed to be doing good works. But doing those good works is an outworking of our identity as saints. Grace that leads to the peace of heaven on earth only comes from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so no matter how hard the authority structures of our day try, be they political, social, educational, or medicinal, none of them in those entities will ever be able to bring true and lasting peace. None of them. Not ultimately. Only God working through His Son in the church for the glory of Christ. That's the plan that God has ordained from before the foundation of the world as we've read. And we see that in Paul who's made an apostle by grace. We see that for those of us that are saints by the grace of God. And all of this happens in Christ. And we need to talk about that for a moment. Those two little words, in Christ, are key to this letter. We're going to talk about this a whole lot as we walk through it. There's 160 references in the New Testament alone to being in Christ. And the highest concentration of those words in Christ, or those idea of in Christ, is right here in Ephesians. 38 times in six chapters. In Christ, through Christ, with Christ. You've got to understand those. In fact, early believers, you may not have known this, early believers did not refer to themselves as Christians. Christians, that notion of Christian was a mocking word. Little Christ, that's what it means. Like little Christ, look at them. You know. That's what it meant. Well, they would, but early Christians would often refer to themselves as followers of the way, or more often, as being in Christ. That's how they were referred themselves to. So what does that term mean? Here you go. Ready? Here's my definition. You're going to really need to get this. If you're going to be back here time and again, you need to get this definition down because we're going to use it. Being in Christ means to have all the fullness of Christ in you and all the fullness of you in Christ. Being in Christ means to have all the fullness of Christ in you and all the fullness of you in Christ. Critical to understand your identity. Critical. Let me take each part of that definition one at a time. One, being in Christ means to have all the fullness of Christ in you. Notice what I did not say there. I did not say that you have all the fullness of Christ's benefits in you. That's true, but that's not what I said. I said that's I said that it's Christ in you. That's part of what it means. Benefits are part of what it means. But it's Christ in you. We cannot separate Christ from His benefits. That would be like separating the benefits of my marriage from my wife. You can't do it. What happens when God adopts you, Christian? As His son or daughter, He takes you into His family based upon the person and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, in you. On the cross, there's this amazing exchange. This great exchange. Jesus takes all of your old identity of sin and shame and guilt and death, and then you, by grace, through faith, in love, receive all of Jesus' identity. His righteousness, His beauty, His acceptance becomes yours as the fullness of Christ takes up residence in the fullness of you. Christian. That's amazing. 
There's a word that we use to describe this positional reality, and that's the word justification. If you're a Christian, you need to know what that means. If you're not a Christian, you need to know what that means. So in order to understand what we believe, justification, that's the word. My wife taught me this, justification. She learned it as a little girl, just as if I'd never. Just as if I'd never sinned. Innocent. Innocent in Christ. That's true of the Christian now. Right now. Because all of Christ is in all of you, then like Jesus, you are justified, Christian. You are righteous. Because why? Jesus is righteous. So you, Christian, listen. You, Christian, you don't have some of Jesus and are needing to perform more religious acts to get more of Jesus in you. No. You can't leak Jesus. Either all of Him is in all of you or He's not at all. There is no in-between. That's why Paul can say here that the the Ephesians, what does it say? Are faithful in Christ Jesus. They are faithful in Christ Jesus. All of the Son is in all of them and all of us that believe. The position of the Son of God has become your position when He took your penalty on the cross and you took Him through faith. Your identity is Christ, Christian. Your identity is Christ, Christian. Meaning, all that Jesus is is all that you are. Because of the fullness of Him who fills all is in all that you, by grace, through faith, you have all of that. It doesn't, and I know, guys, listen to me, I know that it doesn't feel that way sometimes, right? Maybe a lot of times. Maybe all the time. I surely don't feel like Christ is in me. I surely don't feel very righteous, Nathan. But the reality is, Christian, you need to know that's how God sees you. That's how you got to grow up in your identity. That's how He sees you. Zephaniah 3 says He sings over you. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean it's not true. See, Christians believe in something that is very countercultural today. Our culture teaches us to basically build our identities on how we feel. And that's a lie from the evil one. We build our identities on what we know to be true. That's guiding our identities. So just because you don't feel like a saint doesn't mean that it's not true if you're holding fast to Christ. The reality is, these Ephesians, I'm sure, when they heard this letter, Tychicus comes to the door, maybe they're gathering there as the church, and he begins to read this letter from Paul, and he starts out, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. I am sure that there are some people in that church that are going, man, I had a rough week this week. I don't feel very righteous. Which is why he had to start the letter that way. <laughs> Unlike the world, our identities are not formed in how, how, what we feel, but in who we are in Christ. And in Christ, the fullness of Him who fills all is in all of us through faith. The second part of in Christ. I also said being in Christ not only means that Christ is in you, it also means the fullness of you or the fullness of us is in Christ. That's the second part. As Christ is placed in us, we too are placed in Him. That's the other part of what it means to be in Christ. So He is placed into us and we are placed into Him. That's exactly why Paul says in Ephesians 5.30 that we are members of His body. I know you guys sometimes think, Nathan, you guys and your church membership. That's where it comes from. That's where we get the idea from. Membership, church membership is right there. Members of His body. So this aspect helps us understand the oneness of our identity in Christ. Christ not only indwells us individually, we all corporately come together in Him, creating one new man. You guys think maybe, you know, sometimes about Adam, right? We're all in Adam, the old Adam, because he sinned. Well, those of us that have trusted in Jesus, we are now the new man. We're in Christ. 
We're in him, the one man, created one new man. So listen to this, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. We'll see this later, like December. Here we go. <laughs> so I'm telling it to you now. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. Listen, he says, there is one body. Just If you're in your Bibles, you should be circling that word one. Every time you see repetition, circle it. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Folks, right now in America, we find that there's fracturing at the seams because there's no unity. There's no us because we have overemphasized me to a detriment. That's what's breaking this country and this world apart. We have overemphasized me over and against the us. The reality is, Restoration Church, we can illustrate what true unity looks like when we understand our identity is not primarily in ourselves, but in Him, in us, in Him. This is the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church. We are not individually loved and forgiven uh, in and of ourselves. That's true. That is true. We are individually loved and forgiven. Individually known. Individually died for. Yes and amen. That's what the evangelical church in, in America always wants to emphasize. True yes and amen. But there's more. Even better, we are corporately woven together in the one body of Christ. All of us come together in Him. So day by day, we love, we serve, we pray for one another, we grow to experience the reality of our togetherness in Christ. This is what Jesus meant when He said that whoever finds His life will lose it. And whoever loses His life for My sake will find it. Christ is our life. We are not left to define ourselves individually Christ is who we are and who we are is Christ. And this unity that we have in Jesus is one of the most precious gifts of our identity in Jesus. It's one of the most precious gifts. You want to know why? Because it's so rare. Try and name one other place where you can find so much unity amidst so much diversity. Try to think of one thing. Where there's a ton of unity amidst a ton of diversity. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, I saw that, Nathan, when I was at the college game yesterday. All different types of people united for our team. You might be tempted to say that you can see it at at your college. You might be tempted to say that you can see it at a concert where people are singing as one, all different kinds of people. That could be said to be one, but friends, that kind of unity is momentary and fickle. It's momentary and fickle. It's momentary because it only encompasses a couple hours or a couple years of your life. And it's fickle because it's built on a sliver of a person's life. If it were a school, it only represents your education. If it's a concert, it only represents your musical tastes. If it's a sports team, it only represents your leisurely interests. Being unified as one in Christ is rare because it defines all of us for all of the time. So the 130 members of Restoration Church, we are one in Christ. All of Him is in all of us individually, but all of us are in Him corporately. Therefore, when we come together, we have a kind of unity at the deepest level that virtually no one experiences around the world. We come together as old and young, as black and white, as Democrat and Republican, as men and women, as Moldovan and Puerto Rican. That was just for you guys, Levinsky's. We come together as sports or no sports. All of us are able to enjoy the deepest of unity because we are all in Christ and He is in us. 
the deepest and most important realities of our lives are the same. We thought about this, guys, when we went through the book letter of Ephesians. I realize that probably 60, 70 percent of you were not here because that was like two and a half years ago. But nevertheless, we thought about that then. The most important reality of us is in Christ. So uh, the church of Jesus Christ is the only place where there's such a diverse group of people that can enjoy the deepest fellowship at the basis of who we are and our identities. All of us and all of him. It's so rare. And this is God's plan to unite heaven and earth. And this is what we get to think about for the next few months. But I realize that it sounds maybe too good to be true for some of you. I mean, how could God do such great things like unite heaven and earth in this little tiny church? Yet the reality of what he has done and is doing in churches all around the world, we can see that it's actually happening. So, friend, you should know that if you've not placed your faith in Christ and you are attempting to find your identity somewhere else, in your job, in your personally defined version of success, in your resume, in some relationship status, you may think that by adding a little bit of Jesus to you, it'll sort of round out your identity. But, friend, it never will. It never will. Let me encourage you, friend, to turn from your sin and trust Jesus. Treasure Him above all things. Count Him as your Savior. Believe that He has died for your sin, rose for your sin, and then come, be baptized, and join the church. And we will love you. No matter what has happened to you, no matter what you have done, if you are in Christ, then you are in all of us. Plead for grace to turn from sin. Make Him your identity as He makes you His. Have peace. And for those of you that have trusted in Christ but have not yet joined this church or some other gospel-believing church, let me encourage you to do that. Joining a church is more than just showing up. It's more than just going through a membership process. It's more than just yeah showing up. So membership is living out externally what is already a spiritual reality internally. It's saying with your lips and with your head and with your hands and with your feet, I am Jesus's and these Jesus's people, they are mine. These are now my family. The gospel is thicker than blood. Like a husband is united to a wife, Christians are united to Christ and to one another more than just spiritually, but emotionally and practically. And when we do life on life together, we display God's power of a reconciled world to God and to neighbor. So join a church if you haven't. And lastly, if you have joined this church, let me encourage you to commit yourself once again to Christ, your identity, and to one another, His body. Watch what God does in our midst as He unites all things together in heaven and on earth for the praise of His glory. So many of you are already doing that. What a joy it is to watch you. I could tell you story upon story that has happened in the life of this church where I've seen heaven and earth breaking, to, breaking in, where peace came in, But let's not forget that that once proud city of Ephesus that was home to ten thousands of people and and one of the seven wonders of the world, let's not forget that that city is now in ruins. Hardly more than a tour stop in modern day Turkey. I got a rock from AJ, brother. And yet the church rolls on. Don't believe the hype, by the way. The church is larger and stronger than it has ever been. That's a, that's a fact. Church has never been stronger, never been more powerful, never been advancing quicker and faster than it ever has been right now. It's just not happening in America or in the West. 
It's happening in the UAE. It's happening in Africa. It's happening in the East. It's happening in Vietnam. I could tell you 10,000 stories, but the New York Times ain't interested in that, so they're not going to tell you. The church is strong. It is mighty. And all the great nations of the world will come down to ruins and the church will be standing there on that last day, lifting up the greatness of the glory of Christ, bound together for his glory, loving one another, singing songs of praise to him. And it will be a great day. And I pray that you will be there. May we as a church unite together to picture heaven and earth as we already have been doing. Let us give ourselves to this. Let us be like Paul. Let us be Sent. Let us live sent. Our destiny is secure. We don't need a big building. We don't need more people. We have all that we need. And as that little church in Ephesus upended the whole city, so can we. And so let's set our hearts and our minds to having our identities be rooted in Christ and to His body as we do good works and spread His fame in our city and around the world. And no matter what the world says, In the end, we will be glad that we gave our lives to that. In Christ, for the glory of God and the praise of His glorious grace, lived out together by grace through faith in Him. Let's pray. Let me invite the music team to come up as we do pray. Now to you, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all of us could ask or think, according to the power that is work within us, to you, God, be glory in this church and every other church around the world that represents Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever.